Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. Very good afternoon to you. It's Thursday. It is fresh thinking time. You are with Rabbi Shishler. We're together until 3 o'clock. And as always... It's a conversation, and I'd love you to be part of that conversation. So make sure you have these numbers handy, 34519, if you'd like to SMS into the show at any point. 0618951019, if you'd like to WhatsApp. Incidentally, it's just before coming here, I was chatting to somebody about the show. And we were talking about the fact that uh, we are a texting community more than a talking community at least in terms of uh, the hour of fresh thinking. And I was just wondering about that, if maybe there's an opportunity to shift that. So if you would be interested in having more talk than we currently have, why don't you text in, ironically, about exactly that, and then we can see if we can get all of that up and running again. Otherwise, you have those lines that you can text to. You can tweet at Chai FM. You can tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. It's exactly one week until Purim. And I know for many people, Purim equals silly season. We've actually spoken about that previously on this show from a variety of angles. We've previously explored. I don't expect that people necessarily remember all of the things that we've spoken about. For that matter, I don't think I remember most of the things that we've spoken about. But I do know that in the past we have spoken about the drinking thing on Purim. We've spoken about the attitude of silliness on Purim. And an interesting interaction with a group of people earlier today, and we were talking about the story of Purim. Now, bear in mind that the purpose of the Fresh Thinking show is not to rehash things we already know from the angles we already know them, but rather to try and see something different, something new, something enlightening. So what was interesting to me was... Maybe this is indicative of many people, and if it is your experience, so you can endorse, I suppose, the experience of other people. But I was completely surprised at how it is there are people in our community who went through a Jewish educational system and know the story of Purim, but only in its very basic form. And we were just going through it earlier. I was talking to a group of people. We were just going through some of the parts of the story, and people were like, wow, I never knew that. And I think that's the kind of thing that we want to do on this show is that I never knew that angle. So we'll play a bit today around the story of Purim, Maybe dredge up some things about the story that you might not know, and maybe you know something about the Purim story that you're pretty convinced that nobody else would know, in which case, by all means, go ahead, share it. I'd love to hear it if you think you've got an insight on the Purim story that other people wouldn't know. And then let's also try and see some of the symbolism and some of the significance of the story because ultimately the story is supposed to, like every story in the Torah, it's supposed to give us something that we can apply in our lives, something that is personal, something that is related to our spiritual development, to our personal growth. So that's the kind of thing that we're going to play around with today. And as best as possible, I'd like to have as much interactive content as possible. So really, like, please 
Share your thoughts. This is not one of those deep philosophical questions where perhaps what you're going to say is going to be highly controversial. This is more along the lines of, well, what do you know? Let's start with that. What do you know about the actual Purim story that you're pretty convinced that the average Jewish person does not know. And this can be very, very interesting. I think maybe you heard something in a talk. Maybe you read something in a book. Maybe you have a particular interest in Megillah and the Purim story. So if you've researched it to a great degree, whatever the particular reason is, if you've got something that you think most people won't know, it's unlikely that you'll have something that nobody knows. But if you've got something about the Purim story that just resonated with you, it tickled your fancy, it, it raised an eyebrow. And you think, hey, that would be interesting. I was at this amazing talk, and they mentioned X. And I really think that other people wouldn't know this, but it might enrich or enhance their perception of the Purim story. Well, that's exactly what we're looking for today. So if you've got that kind of an insight, it could be a one-liner. It could be a full paragraph. Maybe you're frantically typing away right now as we speak, waiting for the opportunity to share that thought. Well, here's your moment to shine and to give us an insight into the Purim story that nobody knows. And you know what the great thing is about the anonymity of text and this might be the very reason why it is that people are so reticent about phoning into the show just in case somebody recognizes their voice like this if you send in an unsigned text well you for all we know could be a teacher yourself you might be a, a, a school teacher who knows the story of Purim and has been preparing it and you've got something which you think the broader community should know you could even be a rabbi who has an insight that the average person doesn't know and you can hide behind the cloud of anonymity and make it sound like you're just Citizen X sending in your thoughts. That's what's wonderful about technology. It allows us the opportunity to do positive things in a way that doesn't necessarily put us into an uncomfortable position. And we always like to focus on the positive. So let's talk. Let's talk the story of Purim. Let's talk it from an angle that people don't necessarily know. What is the one fact about the Purim story, the one nuance, the one detail of the Purim story that you were surprised to know that you were, or maybe via extension, I suppose, maybe there's a part of the Purim story that you've always wondered about that's kind of left you scratching your head. And there are, there are elements of the story, especially if you know the story in greater detail, that do leave you wondering, hey, hang on a second, how could that have been? So let's, uh, I'll, I'll get it started and hopefully you'll dive in as well and get involved. I know that we can always rely on the fresh thinking listenership because there is always insight and there are always perspectives and always angles. And I certainly hope that today will be no different. So the, how does the story kick off? You know, I've, of, I've, I've often thought about this, that the Purim story lends itself to be this magnificent theatrical production. It could make a great movie, especially the opening scene is so incredibly visual and so incredibly exciting. And the opening scene of the Purim story is the feast of King Ahasuerus. So there you get introduced straight away to one of the main characters of the story. And what is interesting, and there's the first little bait that I'm going to throw out. What is interesting is that occasionally, in fact, a lot of the time, in the Megillah, Achashverosh is not referred to by name. He's referred to by the generic title, Ha-Melech, the king. In fact, there's a certain style of writing a Megillah where you have the word Ha-Melech, the king, as the opening word of every single column of the Megillah. So any person who's ever looked at a Megillah scroll, any person who's ever looked at a Torah scroll, you will know that everything is arranged in vertical columns. 
That's how the writing is arranged in vertical columns. It looks very calligraphic and, and very beautiful. So there is a particular style of Megillah that is written with Hamelech as the first word of each column. And that puts a tremendous emphasis, ironically, on a person, and this is, should be the first thing that raises an eyebrow. Why is it that Achash Verosh, who's the king, who quite frankly is a despot and bit of a crazy person, He's got a lot of hang-ups, by the way. If you do a psychological analysis of the man, he clearly has commitment issues. He is very ambivalent for, we know, perhaps he was bipolar. I don't know. He's got a tremendous amount of paranoia that develops through the course of the story. He's very rash in his decision-making. He's a terrible judge of character on the one hand in his adoption of Haman as his 2IC. On the other hand, he's an incredible judge of character in his choice of Esther as a queen. But then again, some of the commentaries in the Talmud seem to indicate that perhaps his choice of Esther was not actually a rational decision of his own, but some kind of an allure that God created around her. Anyhow, here's a guy called Achashverosh, who frankly you would not want running your country, and he gets so much airtime in the story. Yes, I know, obviously he's, he's the main character to the story, but like this Hamelech style Megillah, where you've got Hamelech the king as the big name opening each of the columns of the Megillah, that sounds a bit odd. You would kind of want to bury this guy surely under some kind of quiet spiritual rock because let's not give too much airtime to the crazy man who at the end of the day will save the day once he's been guided appropriately and only because he's the one who wields the power so we don't have an alternative but to use him but other than that he seems to occupy a tremendously central part of the story so there's something for you to think about i'm also curious if anybody is aware of what the feast was about we know the megillah tells us that there's this 150 day feast and it's open for everybody, and who knows how many people attended. The Megillah does not tell us how many people attended, but it does say that it was extravagant in the extreme. So what was the celebration for? The Megillah does not tell us that. So there again might be a little unknown fact about the Megillah that perhaps you do know, and that's something which you feel would be useful for somebody to know. So there's something to throw out as well. How's about this? How much do you know about the character of Haman? I mean, we all know that Haman arrives at the the Purim story and very quickly rockets to power. And that's not so surprising because it always seems that the villains rocket to power pretty quickly. But who's the man? Where does he come from? What's his background? And what's his lineage? I think more people perhaps know about his lineage than about his background. And essentially what I'd like to do today is fill in some of those intriguing perspectives and maybe some personal lessons that we can take from the Megillah. I'd love to hear your insight. What's the one thing in the Megillah story that you think is brilliant and people should know but probably don't? SMS 34519 or WhatsApp 0618951019. You can tweet at Chai FM. You could tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. Okay, I get it. I see what's happening over here. So people think that this is a test and that you could fail. <laughs> That's often what people are afraid of, fear of failure. It's a very paralyzing element of most people's psyche and certainly in our community. So no, it's not a test and no, you cannot fail. I'm just simply asking a simple question 
what for you is the thing, the thing about the Megillah that you think uh, this is something people should know because it is interesting. So, I'll, like I said, I'll start off the the feast, this grand feast that Achashverosh has. It's a feast to celebrate the downfall of the Jewish people. And the backstory is that it was well known, both in the Jewish and the Persian community, that there was a prophecy. And the prophecy said that after the destruction of the Jew, of the temple in Jerusalem and after the exile of the Jews, and this is where the timing and the calculations get a little bit skewed, but basically after the Jews would go into exile, 70 years later they would return and reestablish the Jewish commonwealth in Israel. Now, if you are the leader of the developed world, like the king of Babylon, or in this case the king of Persia, because remember the Persian Empire destroyed the Babylonian Empire. So this is something that might be of interest or probably of concern. You don't want the Jews going and re-establishing themselves. Then they'll become a powerful nation and you'll have some upstarts in your empire who may not conform. So there was this tremendous fear and concern about the fulfillment of this prophecy and you may very well remember that there was a Babylonian king called Belshazzar. You remember him? He's the famous guy with the writing on the wall. You know, the, the divine inspired handwriting, the first heavenly graffiti that said basically that the, they were going to be destroyed, the Babylonians would be destroyed. And that all happened at a celebratory feast that he had because by his calculations, the 70 years were up. Now, the Purim story starts with Achashverosh, who is a Persian king, who, by the way, does not come from royal blood. And that's why the Megillah makes the point, and it says that he was sitting on the throne, not that he deserved to be sitting on the throne. Nice little nuance, and there are quite a lot of those in the Megillah. In fact, if you want to know, the Megillah is a very nuanced scroll. A lot of what is said is actually not said, and you learn more by what is omitted than by what is stated. In any event, so Achashverosh wants to have this massive feast because by his calculations, the 70 years are up and this Jewish commonwealth does not look like a blip on the horizon, so it's over. The Jewish people have finally succumbed. That's what he believes. And he has this incredible feast. And the shocking part of it, and here's lesson number one that we could probably apply in our world today. Lesson number one, King Achashverosh running a feast to celebrate the downfall of the Jewish people has the goal to invite them. And not only does he invite them, but he offers that the food is going to be of the highest standard of kashrut. What a profound lesson for today, which we'll get to in just a moment. We know that Mordechai, who was the spiritual leader of the Jewish people at the time, fought tooth and nail that Jews should not attend that feast. And of course, the immediate response from the people was, why not? This is the leader of the developed world. This is our king. How dare we not attend his feast? Plus, look how much effort he has invested in trying to make us comfortable. He's offering a kosher alternative. Now, you must know this, that if you want to speak to the Jewish community, you've you got to offer food. And that's what he did quite effectively. And I'm sure he had some top-level caterer who was renowned with all the right hechsher uh, 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 you know, assigned to it. And, and people couldn't understand what could be non-kosher about going to this incredible feast, this amazing embrace. 
here we are, we've lived through the Babylonian exile, we've seen what the nations of the world could do to us, and suddenly here's a king who wants us on side, and he's, he's inviting us into his palace. I mean, that's an amazing thing. What a lesson. Mordechai says, don't buy it. Don't buy the hype. If people tell you that they love you, look just for a moment and say, well, what's the message really saying? I could very well imagine Achashverosh saying something along these lines. I have nothing against Jews. I just don't want them to have a country. I just don't want them to have a Jewish commonwealth. That's basically what he was saying. He was celebrating the fact that that land had been usurped from the Jewish people. He was saying that their spiritual epicenter, the temple, had been torn down. According to the commentaries, he came to this feast and served people out of bowls that had been plundered from the Jewish temple, and he wore the garments of the Kohen Gadol of the high priest. In other words, he made a very, very loud statement about his extreme satisfaction at the fact that Jews were not living in Israel, that we did not have a homeland and that we did not have a temple. And I think that's, by the way, very important, incidentally, is to understand that our connection to the land of Israel is very tightly linked to our connection to our spirituality. And you can't divorce the two. So, but he says, but I like you. I like you as people. I don't have an issue with you as people. You can come to my feast. You can sit at my table. We can be part of the same organization, the same uh, focus, the same group, just as long as you understand that I have issues with your history, or in this case, with the nature of your spiritual connection to this land of Israel. So you could see in that, you could see in a, sto- a story in that that has very relevant contemporary message for us. And that was exactly Mordechai's issue. Mordechai said, you have to understand a fundamental principle of life. The fundamental principle says that we create our realities. We have two choices. We can create a reality which from a Jewish perspective, is the reality that we're expected to live. And in that reality, it's me and God. So my blessings come from God. My safety is underwritten by God. My success is his input. And so therefore, no power or force in the world can interfere with, either for positive or for negative, my success or blessing. If God wants to bless me, there's no barrier in the world that can stop it. And if God has chosen not to bless me, there's no friend in the world who's going to step in instead of him. In other words, I might have friends in high places, very well-placed political people with a lot of clout. And I think I'm going to mosey up to them and get really close to them and we'll become friends and we'll talk a, a similar language and then my life will be good. Well, that's what Mordechai said. You're making a terrible mistake up here. That's not how it works. We go directly to the top. We don't, we cut out the middleman, as they say. We don't have this reliance on any other force, person, organization, party in the world. We have to do what we have to do as Jewish people. And what we have to do as Jewish people is not to take the bait of kosher food to an environment that is completely antagonistic and antithetical to everything that Judaism is all about. Don't go there. You can't go there. It's a terrible place to be. Mordechai's lesson echoes loudly in contemporary terms. Don't think that people who speak similar language to us but have a particular agenda, but don't worry because some of our best friends are Jewish, 
don't make that mistake and think, well, they're powerful people. We have to give them the due and we have to allow them the opportunity to be respected. That is when you empower that environment. Again, we have two choices of how we live our lives. We can live our lives that God is the epicenter and then that becomes our reality or we could choose to live our lives. So we bow our heads and if you remember part of the conflict in the Purim story is about bowing your head. So we bow our heads to individuals and say, well, these are important people and these are people that have a lot of power in today's world and so we really have to take seriously what it is that they say. Well, then that becomes our reality and Hashem is not going to prescribe to us initially at least. I mean, eventually he's he gets the message through. But initially, at least, he's not going to say, oh, I'm going to pull the rug out from under you because you've abandoned me. He's going to say, okay, go down that path. See where it leads you. And sadly, not only in the Purim story, but throughout our history, typically doesn't lead us into a place that we really, really want to be. So your thoughts, what's the insight, the angle, the specific part of the story of Purim that really speaks to you? Or that raises an eyebrow and you've always wondered why is that part of the Purim story? Because it seems to be either arbitrary or strange. Pick up a Norwood Hyper have the following pocket saving sweet deals just for you. They've got pick up a no name macaroni or spaghetti, 500 grams for 8 rand 99. Pick up a long life milk, 6 times 1 litre. So a pack is just 59 rand 99. Salad farm eggplant mayonnaise, 500 grams for 52 rand 99. And clover, cheddar, goda or tusses. 800 grams for just 79 rand 99. Catch these and many more specials in store. These specials are exclusive to Pick and Pay Norwood Hyper and only while stocks last. Pick and Pay Norwood, the best place to shop when you want to buy a lot. It's uh, halfway through, halfway through the show. We're going until 3 o'clock if you've just tuned in. This is Fresh Thinking. You are with Rabbi Ari Shishla. And today talking about the Purim story, I did say that we do things a little differently. We're not going to just tell the story. As it is always told, I'm looking for things that stand out, things that catch your attention, things that you think are odd or inspiring about the story, an insight, something that you heard, something that you came across, which is intriguing to you. So far, what we've touched on is why the story opens up with this grand feast of Achashverosh and essentially the battle that Mordechai had with his own people where he told them, please, whatever you do, don't go to that feast. And the reason was because that was going to allow them to buy into a narrative and a headspace and the headspace that you live becomes the reality that you live. And a headspace that basically said, the power does not rest with us. The power rests with other people. They are the leadership. They are the loud voices. We need to be very respectful towards them. We need to really give them their due and then life will be good. And Mordechai says, please don't make that mistake. As Jewish people are concerned, that's not when life is good. Life is good is when we do what God wants. And that's why if you look at the rest of the story, the way they resolve things and reestablish an equilibrium and get rid of Haman and get Achashverosh actually to, isn't this ironic? Instead of them paying homage to him, he becomes their great defender and he gives them sweeping powers to be able to defend themselves. It's an incredible turnaround from the beginning of the story where the Jews feel themselves weak. And Achashverosh empowered to the end of the story where Achashverosh is actually supporting the Jews. The Jews are the ones with the power. So what shifted? They did. They shifted. They came to recognize, oh my gosh, 
Hashem is actually in control. And so we better reconnect and reconcile with him because if we don't do that, we have no power at all. doesn't matter who you thought your big friends were. turns out they're not such big friends anyway. turns out that Haman is a pretty bad guy and he really wants the worst for us. And he's got Achashverosh eating out of his hand. So as soon as we wake up to that and we realize that that is the reality and God is our only go to, then things start to settle down and then we start to turn them around and as the Megillah says, Vanaha Foichu, everything turns on its head. So when the Jews start to pray, when the Jews go back to their roots, when they start to fast, when they recognize only God can assist us, that's when that becomes their reality again. And the smart thing to do, I suppose, and what the Purim story is teaching us is don't wait until the pressure's on to have that realization. You don't have to be back against the wall to recognize that our power, our blessing, our goodness comes directly from God. Very powerful and profound story. So what else? What else can we dig up out of the story? I mean, we could talk about this for absolute hours. Really, we can. I think one of the things that's a big theme in the Purim story, and I've already touched on it very briefly, but here's a big theme in the Purim story, is the showdown between Mordechai, who of course is the hero, him along with Esther, the heroine of the story. But particularly, Mordechai has this showdown that runs right through the story with Haman, who is the villain of the story. Now, people may not know this, but here's an irony. Trace it back far enough, and you'll find that they're actually related. I mean, it's a long way away. But the fact of the matter is that the lineage of Mordechai traces back to our forefather, Yaakov, and the lineage of Haman to his older brother Asaph. So this is a conflict that had been running for a very long time. It's a few centuries in this classic conflict between Asaph and Yaakov, this power play. And when you see Haman say, bow to me, and Mordechai say, no, well, actually, there's an echo of history there because Yaakov, the great, great granddaddy of Mordechai had previously bowed to Asaph, the great, great granddaddy of Haman. So there's an echo of history over here. And Mordechai stands his ground. And I think it's really important for us to, to understand what's going on over there and to understand the contemporary lesson. So who is Haman? Not who is Haman in the story. We know who he is in the story. Or maybe you don't. Maybe a lot of people don't know that Haman used to be a simple barber. One of these rags to riches kind of story, although it wasn't to riches, it's more to prominence. Sounds a little bit like American politics, you know, where they say that anybody can become president and then it actually happens. You have people who rise out of nowhere and you think, oh my goodness me, how could this person have such a powerful leadership position in our country? Well, that's Haman. Haman came from nowhere. He had no, no royal blood, so to speak, no political uh, knowledge. I mean, he was a barber. <laughs> which is quite something to imagine. And then he rockets to become the prime minister with sweeping powers and is able to get an executive decision from the king that he could do whatever he wants. Other than that, there is another very interesting encounter that happens before the Purim story. And that's the earliest encounter recorded between Mordechai and Haman when they're both on the battlefield very strange to imagine that Mordechai would have been on the battlefield because at the time of the Purim story, he was already an older man. He had been a member of the Sanhedrin, the high court of Israel, before the destruction of the first temple. We know that we're at least 70 years down the line at the point of this story. So he couldn't have been a young man on the battlefield, but that nonetheless, Mordechai does all kinds of things that are quite youthful for a man of his age. 
So Mordechai is on the battlefield and Haman is the leader of a platoon that pretty much gets wiped out and he's the only survivor and he's down and out and doesn't have anything to eat or drink and he begs Mordechai for something. Now Mordechai of course is a holy man and he knows what's coming to a greater or lesser extent. He certainly knows that Haman is a person who needs to be managed. He needs to be managed in a way to mitigate the power that he'll have in the future. So Mordecai says to him, no problem, I'll supply you with the refreshments, with the resources that you need in order to survive, because you're a dying man right now. So you've got it. I'll give you food and drink. There's just one condition. What are you going to pay me? And Haman says, what am I going to pay you? <laughs> I'm not, it's not like I'm carrying cash on the battlefield. So he says, that's fine. Mordecai says to him, that's fine. You don't have to pay me anything. You'll just sell yourself to me as a slave. Very common practice in those days. You don't have money for something? That's fine. So you sell yourself. So Haman, in desperation, because he's literally a dying man, says, okay, you got a deal. I'll do that. But Mordecai says, where are we going to record this transaction? We're on the battlefield. We don't exactly have paper. So Mordechai says, I'll tell you what, I'll etch it onto the sole of my shoe, the undersole of my shoe. That's where we're going to put this contract. I, Haman, you're going to sign it. I, Haman, the son of Hamdasa, hereby sell myself as a slave to Mordechai, the Jew, in lieu of the food and drink that he's going to provide for me. And they do exactly that. Isn't that interesting? Remember that Mordechai comes directly from the line of Yaakov and Haman directly from the line of Esav. Now, remember, remember that story? Asav also feeling that he was going to die because he hadn't eaten. He'd been out hunting the whole day, came back absolutely famished, sees his brother making a lentil soup. And he says, give me some soup. And Yaakov says to him, oh, really, how much is the soup worth to you? Because it was actually for our father. You know, why should I give you the soup? He says, I'll give you anything. And Mordechai says, sell me your birthright. You hear the echo of history here? Yaakov gets his brother at a moment where he is physically vulnerable because he hasn't eaten to sell him his birthright, which is essentially to sell him his dignity. And now you've got Mordechai and Haman all those generations later repeating almost exactly exactly the same scenario. Isn't that fascinating? And you find that a lot in Torah, by the way, that there are certain themes that repeat through the course of Torah. Here's one of them. And it's not because Mordechai has a vendetta against Haman. It's because Mordechai recognizes that there's something about Haman that has to be dealt with. And if he can get Haman to hand himself over, essentially to sell himself into his hands as a slave, that will mitigate the nature of who this villain is going to be in the story. So he essentially softens the blow that is coming. He weakens the power of Haman. Now, there is another angle and perspective to this particular part of the story, and we're going to take that with us. We're going to talk about exactly that. So let's see. Let's see. Uh, sorry, somebody sent in a tweet, but it's actually not related to what we're talking about not directly. So we'll leave that one for now. Uh, your thoughts. If you've got a particular part of the story that resonates specifically with you, love to hear it. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So you've got this incredible showdown between Mordechai and Haman that starts before the Megillah starts its story and definitely is one of the main themes that runs through the Megillah. So Haman becomes this very powerful, in fact, the most powerful minister in Achashverosh's empire, which at that time was the largest empire in the world, the Persian Empire. 
um, possibly the largest largest empire in history, if I'm not mistaken. And there he's got Mordechai, thorn in his side, because Haman, as soon as he's appointed into a position of prominence, the power goes straight to his head, and he literally goes off his rocker. And expects everybody to bow down to him. And according to one opinion in the Talmud, he actually suspended a miniature idol around his neck. So it wasn't just about bowing down to him as a sign of respect to his position, but it was a means of, I guess, missionizing to the people that they should bow to his particular pet idol. According to some views, he considered himself to be a deity of sorts that people should have bowed to. In any event, Mordechai refuses. He's the only person in the entire kingdom who will not bow down to Haman, and it really riles Haman up. What is this? What kind of a, I mean, the king has issued a decree that everybody has to bow to me. Where are you in all of this? And Mordechai just nonchalantly lifts his shoe, a very old shoe that he'd been wearing for some time, and there etched under the sole is this contract where Haman had sold himself as a slave to Mordechai. So not only does Mordechai refuse on principle to bow to Haman, he actually rubs his nose in it. He says, why else should I be bowing to you? I am your master. And that's why Haman gets so upset. Actually, the reason that Haman gets so upset, the Megiddo tells us, is because Haman understands that Mordechai is not a lone crazy crackpot, but that he in fact represents what Jews think. And what Jews believe. And Haman essentially feels that maybe the Jews pay lip service to their loyalty to me and the loyalty to the throne. But ultimately their loyalty lies with God. And he's not wrong about that. There you can hear an echo as well. Very often through history, especially in the last few months, people have brought into question Jewish loyalty to their host countries. And the truth of the matter is that there's a, a law in the Torah that we have to be loyal to our host country. At the same time, it's also fair to say that our heart is primarily given to God. That's how it is. And so should there be a conflict of interest between what God wants from us and what our host country wants from us, we're going to go with God. That's what Haman saw in Mordechai's eyes. He didn't see one man who had a personal history with him, refused to bow to him. He saw in him the representation of Jewish awareness and consciousness, which is you don't bow to anybody, you bow to God alone. Now, here's an a very relevant lesson for us because there's a Haman character in the Purim story and there's a Haman character in the story of each one of our lives. Just like Haman is that villainous person who I suppose you imagine the villain to have some kind of an evil laugh and, and look a little bit dark and perhaps have, I don't know, sharp nails or sharp teeth. or I don't know what it is that people imagine villains to have. I've got news for you. Haman probably looked very slick. I imagine that he was very charismatic, must have been, got everybody on side, managed to get into the king's head. He was very smooth. He was an operator, and we've all got one of them inside our own heads. And he sweet talks the people into doing what he wants, exactly like that voice in our heads. Haman is not a character from centuries ago, and that's where he dies. Haman lives on inside our own consciousness. And Haman is so good at what he does. He is so good at wiling us into doing things that we actually know we shouldn't. In the language of the Talmud, that the nature of this charismatic voice inside of us, the Haman voice inside of us, doesn't cackle, but he says... Just today, let's just do this. 
Tomorrow he says, let's do that. And eventually he gets you to the point where you serve Avoida Zara. Now, the translation of Avoida Zara is always translated as idolatry, but there is a more subtle translation. Avoida means service of God, Zara, or service generally, and Zara means foreign. The goal of Haman is to get us to do things that are actually foreign for us. In other words, the goal of Haman is to get us to do exactly what we should not be doing. And he is so subtle because, yes, of course, there are certain red lines that none of us would cross. But Haman doesn't want us to cross red lines, at least not immediately. Haman is quite happy for us just to skate on the edge, just to do something that's a little bit off. The nature of life is a small diversion from your destiny, from your path early on in the, in, in, in the journey. It's going to take you a long way off your path down the line. And that's all that Haman wants. The good news is that we've got a Mordechai voice inside us as well. And Mordechai is identified as Yehudi, which becomes the collective noun for the Jewish people. In fact, the Megillah is the very first time that we are referred to as Yehudim. Prior to that, we are typically referred to as Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel. Here we are referred to as Yehudim, which best translated means Jews. But it also comes from the word Lehodot, which means to acknowledge or to admit. So there is a Haman voice inside of us, and there's a Mordechai voice inside of us. And the Mordechai voice inside of us is Yehudi. Just acknowledge. Acknowledge what Hashem wants. Acknowledge what is true. Acknowledge what is expected of you. Don't veer. Don't get sweet-talked into believing all kinds of other things that might seem extremely lucrative and and maybe even very spiritual. Don't think for one moment that Haman was some kind of a base human being who had no sensitivity towards spiritual things. He was good at what he did. He was slick. He was a person who, I, I can assure you now, if Haman would appear in our neighborhood, we'd probably find that a lot of people would want to go hear his motivational talks. That's the kind of guy that Haman was. Haman was the person who was setting the fad of the time. This is how you guys should behave. You should all come bow. So bowing was in, and that's what everybody was doing. And there were those people who argued that it wasn't even trafe. Because he has a man, powerful man. This is the law of the land. He's got the king's backing. We should support him. He's Haman. That's what Mordechai says. Haman is Haman. It doesn't matter what kind of sheep's clothing he wears. It doesn't matter how sweet he talks. It doesn't matter how much he promises you that he's actually got nothing against you. Just so long as you toe the line and do what he says and then everything will be fine. The Mordechai voice says, he's Haman. Don't buy it. Don't so much as bow your head. Bowing your head is a very significant and symbolic thing in Judaism because your head is your ability to remain rational. Your head is your ability to uh, to analyze things and to be able to assess them from an objective point of view. And any time that a person bows their head, what they're basically doing is saying, okay, I'm going to accept your version. I'm not going to test it. I'm going to bow my head. I'm going to relinquish my capacity for analysis. I'm going to relinquish my capacity for knowing right from wrong. I'm going to relinquish my critical thinking and I'm just, I'll hear what you're saying because, because you've put it across in such a compelling way. You have such an emotive message. You've written such a meaningful story. You've shown such a powerful clip in the media. So I, I think, okay, I hear you. I, I'm going to just bow my head and, and, and accept what it is that you have to say. And you need to know that Haman is going to speak in a language that sounds very tempting to bow your head to and say, well, you know, the man has a point. 
man has a point. Maybe we're just spinning a yarn that's that's run its course. Maybe we are outdated. Maybe we are too conservative. Maybe we are discriminatory. Maybe, you know, this whole Judaism elitist thing. Maybe we're still trying to keep laws that are no longer relevant in today's modern, incredibly advanced society. So we kind of bow our heads at, at Haman and we say, you know, maybe you've got a point. And he doesn't come along guns blazing and say, I want to chuck out the whole of Judaism. He just wants us to just, just acknowledge that he has a point in one area, just in one little area. That's fine. And then it moves from there and we start to escalate from there and we start to, I suppose, unravel from there. So that's where you got to listen to your Mordechai voice. He says, don't buy it. If it's not what God said, then it's Haman speaking. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So here's a WhatsApp from Moshe who says, if we look at the Purim story, it all looks like it was a natural course of events and nothing really miraculous. The way Esther happened to be in the right place at the right time can be seen as quote-unquote coincidental. The hand of God was hidden, which also happens in our everyday lives. We need to look out for the hand of God and open our eyes. If we do, it brings joy. That's why Purim is a time of joy. It's a great WhatsApp. It's a great WhatsApp, and it's such a relevant message. And I think it's one of those things that, uh, if you think about Purim, you can uh, you can actually say yes. That's a very f- prominent theme of Purim. That just because things don't appear to be directed by God, that is by no means an indication that they are not directed by God. In fact, on the contrary. Nice message. So. Talking about the uh, Haman Mordechai battle, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that that is a battle that happens in our own consciousness, probably on a daily basis, but it's always so subtle. I don't know why people think maybe because we make so much noise when Haman's name is mentioned, so everybody thinks that Haman is very in your face. He's not. He's not at all. He's insidious. Haman is this this kind of little gnawing feeling that you get because society disapproves of a position that you hold. So you say, you oh, know, maybe we should just accept a little bit of what society has to say. Maybe the power lies with them, much like the Jews who said, oh, it's just a subtlety. I mean, the, the food is kosher. What's the big deal? How bad could things be? It's presented in a kosher way. So often things are presented to us and the language around it sounds like kosher language. But in fact... At the most subtle level, the message is so trafe. So Mordechai is our voice that says, Yehudi, I only have one measure of what's right and what's wrong. And that is, does God want it? It's important for us to ask ourselves those questions. Is this what God wants? And more specifically, is this what God wants of me? Remember, Haman wants us to serve Avoida Zora. People don't realize this. One of the greatest tools that the Haman voice has in his arsenal One of his greatest weapons is to convince us to do something that is positive, but is Zara, foreign. It's not my job. It's not my job. There are a lot of good people out there. This world has many people, and most of them are good. And most of them could be doing things that I could do. Only I could do things that only I can do. And so, actually, one of the great thought-provoking elements of the Purim story is to ask ourselves, if what I'm doing is what I should be doing, does it fit with who I am? Does it fit with what God expects of me? Because he designed me in this particular way, so that's the greatest clue that I have as to what he expects of me. 
And the minute Haman starts saying, no, go here, go here, do this. This is, this is really important. Go fight that cause. Go stand up for that humanitarian effort. Go get involved in this particular movement. I have to ask myself, hang on a second, is it something that could do the job without me? In which case, maybe I have to say, hang, I don't know if that's my job. I don't know. I don't know if that's what God put me on this earth for. And so one of the profound sto- messages of Purim is that message of, I'll always have a voice in my head that's trying to distract me from what I should be doing. I need to learn how to hear the voice in my head that resonates with who I am, what my essence is about, and what I'm here for. And it's not so easy to hear that voice. We need training. We need insight. That's one of the reasons that we consistently learn Torah, because it helps to hone our skills to be able to hear the right voice, to be able to know what we should be doing. And we have to be willing to say, hang on a second, maybe I'm, I need to rethink Maybe my position is just going with the flow of what's popular in society, and I need to rethink, is it what's right? Is it what's true? True. That's a big word. But then again, Purim is a time of truth. That's why not everything is as it seems to be, because the truth lies in often what's not said openly. Like a lot of the Purim story lies in what's not said openly. So have a wonderful Shabbos. And I hope that you found that interesting, and I hope that it will stimulate you to go and look, because there's so much more about the story. Have a wonderful Purim. It should be a time of joy and miracles for all of us.